0: Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. As we go further into 2 Kings, the focus shifts away from the prophets and back toward the kings. In this episode, we're going to find greater theological depth than is apparent on a cursory reading of the text. The key is, first to seek an answer to why the author records what he chooses to record and second to see how the story fits in the larger context of the whole of scripture at the risk of falling into cliché we're going to title this episode the good the bad and the ugly
1: second second kings it's all one book
0: <clears throat> Do you, feel like you, never finished
1: you know don't even go there. Uh, don't get me started. Because you know what will happen then. We'll end up going back to Genesis and starting from there and moving forward. Because really, no, I, I'm not even going to So, Reading, studying, contemplating this. This, what we are looking at, it it is so deep, and yet... It's one of those things, it's like, one of those things, it's like, in a motorboat, you are not, you have no real consciousness of how deep that the waters are beneath you. <clears throat> this is one of those passages, and this is one of those passages, it's easy to just skim over, like, on a, like as on a motorboat, and have no real conception of how deep everything is. And this is the way most people are reading the Bible. And very understanding, I mean, I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, Lord, how did I miss this before? But in the context of everywhere we've been going, it's it's helped me to really understand what's going on here in this passage. I hope that we can get some of that across this morning uh, in just these two relatively short chapters. There is so much in here. We're not going to get to all of it this morning, all that I have looked at, all that I've seen, perhaps we can just get in some of it. And may the Lord's Spirit guide you into all of the rest. Chapter 13, 2 Kings, if you please. Verse 1, in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. Now you remember Jehu. For all of his faults, and he had many. J.U. was... Let me... I'll let me... oh, hold that thought. I've, I've got... Sorry, I've got a traffic jam in my brain. Where...
0: <laughs> Keep
1: it going. I've got too many things wanting to come all at once. Give me a second. <clears throat> Calm down. Okay. If you remember Jehu, for all of his faults, God did bless him. He gave him a gracious reward for fulfilling the purpose for which God had anointed him. Primarily which was to clean out the house of Omri. That is, Ahab and all of his descendants. And to get them out. Jehu did that in a very bloody fashion. And in some ways he overdid it. Nevertheless, he did do that. He did fulfill that primary commission which God had given him. And for that, God said, you'll have four generations on a throne you'll have a dynasty that will last for four generations. Now that may not sound like much in the scope and it might have, it might sound like more or less, you know, you think from this point, wow, four generations from now. You know, my uh, you know, you think about that in terms of a political family, you know, you think about that in terms of you imagine four generations in in a political high situation in this country, you know, and just think of that. And but you think about that in the scope of the larger history. Of the nation in the larger history of the world, and that really isn't that much. Well, we've got God continuing to be faithful to His Word. And His Word does not, de- the faithfulness of His Word does not depend upon the worthiness of the people. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind me give you kind of a, of an overarching thought, just kind of a concept of what we're going to be looking at today. Probably the greatest movie <coughs> title of all time was Gone with the Wind. Which, of course, was a title of the novel before that, so I don't know. That may have been cheating. But That, just a terrific movie title, which is why do I say that? it? just becomes proverb. Second greatest movie title of all time, which it just entered the language. The title actually was way better than the movie. And that is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: there's just, that's just a wonderful turn of a phrase that is just, it, it, it just has, there's just an image there, you know, that, that kept. That's kind of what we've got in these two chapters. And we've got God's surprising dealings with the good, the bad, and the ugly, and not only surprising, but perplexing. You look at this, and if you're paying attention, which you should be when you're reading the Bible, you know, first rule of reading the Bible, pay attention. Pay attention to what you're reading to. Even the begats. Pay attention. There's always something there. Usually something that you won't expect. We don't have begats here, but we've got, you know, just kings who are passing through and doing their thing. And we've got, you know, the, just the typical things that are said about them. But the way that God is dealing with them is surprising. And it takes us... And sometimes it's a little bit distressing. Let's see what we're talking about here. Okay, we've been introduced to Jehoahaz the son of Jehu began to reign over Israel and Samaria he reigned 17 years and <laughs> he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat which he had made Israel to sin and he did not depart from them okay you remember weeks ago we talked about the power of precedent that precedent that Jeroboam the son of Nebat set and nobody and nobody undid that nobody went to the constitution because the original constitution was too politically incorrect because it was associated with the line of david the promises that god gave to david about the worship of the lord centering in jerusalem and all of that and, and the, the kings of israel didn't believe in god enough to believe that god could sustain their kingdom their kingdom and the wor- the true worship of the lord at the temple at the altar with the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. So they constructed their own humanistic religion, but they called it the worship of the Lord. That's that precedent. And they went on and nobody undid that. But something took place with Ahab. And when Ahab came in, through the influence also of his Tyrian wife, Jezebel, and brought in Baal worship in and we have seen the last several weeks the, the ongoing breakout a uh, visible and visual breakout of the spiritual war in this world as God says no <laughs> you I will I, I do not like it and ultimately will not tolerate it the wor- the improper worship of me but I will absolutely not let my people be given over to the name of Baal. God will not lose his name and his people. And that war breaks out. And so Ahab Ahab becomes known as the worst and the wickedest of the kings of Israel. But you know what he's done? Even with all of that, he set a new precedent. And he's raised the bar. Jehu comes in. He wipes out the house of Ahab. And God declares him righteous for that. Jehu doesn't do anything else. That, may, that would please God, and make Him right. Jehu does not get rid of the sins of Jeroboam the sons of Nebat. Uh, Jehu does not get rid of those golden calf temples and altars at Bethel and at Dan. And that prece- precedent—the <coughs> becomes—Jehu thinks, "I'm all for the Lord, and the Lord's all for me because I've gotten rid of Baalism." So now the new precedent is. Compared to Baalism, this altar to the Lord at Bethel with the golden calf, that looks downright righteous. Do you see what I'm saying? It is, it is what Daniel Patrick Moynihan talked in cultural and social terms of defining deviancy down. Now, these golden calves, compared to Baalism, these golden calves don't look so bad. They don't look so evil. They don't even think of this as being a deviation from the commandment of God. They don't see it. God sees it. God's prophets see it. But they don't see it. Deviancy, because of the precedent given by Ahab now looks normal. (coughs) Terrible, powerful social and religious effect of the permission of evil into your life. And that happens on an individual level too. You permit some sin to grow in your own life. And that has its consequences. And finally God, in wrestling with God... you you expunge that from your life and you finally give that over to the cross. And then you think, (laughs) there is this psychological thing, there's this thing in your soul that thinks, well, I'm not doing that anymore, so I'm doing what God's commanded me to do. And that's not so, necessarily, is it? If everything is compared to this egregious sin... Yeah, it looks pretty good. But that's not what God compares things to. God compares... He judges us according to His standard for our life. We, and we who are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing less than Christ Jesus that will be sufficient for who we are. We've got to take care not to let evil precedent even evil precedent expunged from becoming the standard of our lives. Okay, hey, let me move on from this. All that's by way of just introduction and kind of even footnote. Okay. Well, it's not really footnote. It's probably Verse 3, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now remember, God had promised them four for. for uh, promised Jehu, okay, you're going to have four generations. That doesn't mean that God's going to be particularly happy with every generation that comes along. So he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael. So this is, yeah, they may have their kingdom, but they're, they're getting hammered every day. By the people that God has appointed to afflict them. And they're supposed to say thank you. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord. And the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel. How the king of Syria oppressed them. That's a verse that sounds very much like. Very reminiscent of a refrain that you see in the book of Judges. Because there's this pattern that takes place in the book of Judges. The people would go in, the people would start out okay, but they would go into sin, they would compromise, they would fall into idolatry, and God would bring in someone to oppress and to judge them. And they would cry out to the Lord in their suffering, and the Lord would have compassion on them and hear them and send them someone who would deliver them. That's the same language that's used. Just between you i used to think that you know all of these books were written by different authors i am of the conviction at this point and i can't absolutely prove it but my my firm conviction is that the book of joshua, joshua through second kings were written by the same author don't know who that was looking forward to meeting him in heaven say dude you are good <laughs> And he'll say, It's all God. Okay. Anyway, go on on all that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> then Jehovah, uh <clears throat> anyway says Jehoah has sought the favor of the Lord. That's the same word. Used in a different connection. For becoming ill. He sought the favor of he sought the favor of the Lord. That word sought the favor, that verb. That's the same word that you in chapter one, verse two became ill. Chapter four, verse two became ill. Same word, but sought the favor that's followed by of the of the Lord. There's a object and that prepositional phrase of the Lord that follows, and so that's the determinant. I just I just thought that that was a interesting thing. It, it's kind of like the emphasis there. You know, The suffering is the that caused him to seek the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord because he had faith. He didn't seek the Lord because it was righteous. He sought the Lord because I can't stand this anymore. Whatever it
0: takes.
1: No atheists in foxholes. <laughs> no atheists in foxholes. And the, Lord, and the Lord listened to him. Now that's the remarkable thing. And therefore, verse 5, the Lord gave Israel a Savior. doesn't name that Savior. And there are different ideas of that. Most of the commentators that I'm looking at say that Savior was Elisha. And I'm inclined to believe him. Why didn't he just say Elisha? Well, that wasn't his point at this particular moment. You remember what Elisha's name means. My God saves. And we'll find out something a little bit in a minute. Got a rush. Let's move on. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hands of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, given victory, given peace, given some of their lives back, they didn't depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had made Israel to sin, but walked in them. Not only did they not depart from them, they walked in them. This was their lifestyle. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz. And that was a parenthetical statement. This translation. Then it goes in verse 7. For there was not left to Jehoahaz. This goes on. and The next verse goes on and says. Okay. How bad of a situation had they gotten in? How how much did Jehoahaz actually need a savior? Why did he end up crying out to the Lord? Well because he didn't have anything left. He didn't have any more resources. There was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen at 10 regiments, whether they had a full thousand complement in them or not. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at threshing. That's a significant phrase. That's a significant figure of speech. I turned them into dust. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might... Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? If you really want to know about, the, about Jehoahaz, go, go to the library. And of course none of those books last anymore because those kings weren't important except as they are in the plan of God. God is eternal. We are not. So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers. They buried in Samaria. Joash, his son, reigned in his place. There's the third generation coming up. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. He reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. And now the rest of the acts of Joash, and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah. Hmm? Yeah, there's a whole section of the story that we're not told. Either we're not going to be told, or in fact, we're not told yet. Rider of Kings says, oh yeah, yeah, he they There was this, this war thing between them. So basically he says, I'll get to that. Hold your horses. There's something more important I want to tell you before then. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles, of kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. So we're introduced to the fourth generation. Already, verse 13, uh, uh, in this verse, in chapter 13, verse 13, we're introduced already to the fourth generation. Notice how quickly we're going through these. Notice that is an indication in the sight of God of the worthiness of these successors of Jehu. So now we get to Jeroboam, it's kind of like, I want to hurry up and get there. But before we actually get to Jeroboam, there's something I want to bring up. And that is Elisha. We haven't heard from Elisha for a while. Last thing we heard about a lot from Elisha was when he sent the messenger to anoint Jehu. That doesn't mean that Elisha's been nowhere. It means we just haven't talked about him. Elisha is probably the one that God sent as the Savior. I'll tell you why I think so. When Elisha had fallen sick, yeah, Elisha, the man of God, he does get sick. He did get sick, at least this one time. And he's not going to recover from this. He's going to die. He's dying. He's an old man. He's been serving the Lord and fighting the Lord's battle now for on on a 50 years since he started with Elijah. Four generations. generations. So uh, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him (coughs) and wept before him crying My father, my father. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Where have you heard those words before? When Elijah was taken up and who spoke them? Elisha, the only only person who was there. Those are the words that Elisha spoke of Elijah. Remember the significance that we found in those words. The chariots and horsemen of Israel. You, you're Israel's one-man army. You are the one who has prevented the destruction of the people of God by the enemy of God. You are the one who stood in the way. You are the champion. And the implication is, what are we going to do without you? Now, Joash, now, what kind of a king is he? How pleasing is he to the Lord? How righteous is he? How diligent is he to serve the Lord? What have we just read?
0: He walked in the way of
1: Jeroboam. He walked in the way of Jeroboam and led his people to walk that way. They were, he was not righteous. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but he had enough sense to know. Elisha goes and we're in trouble because Elisha is the only thing that stood between us and total destruction now i don't think he had all of the spiritual import into these words when he says these words to Elisha that Elisha had when he spoke them to of Elijah i think when he's coming i think he's saying when you leave i am in trouble I think that's what he has in mind. He, I don't think he's got anything... I, I don't think he has a clue as to the spiritual power of this man. But I think he looks at Elisha as being, this is the one guy that I've got that has that's given me any chance of victory against my enemies. And what am I going to do? And so he goes... And he does have sense enough to go and he does have enough sensibility to weep, not in repentance, but in regret and sorrow, that he's losing the best thing that he's got. He's got that much sense. I give him credit for that. Writer of Kings does. Basically, sorry, think lucky, rather... That's right he is he's losing his best ally he's losing his lucky rabbit's foot he's losing the the one thing that he's got that keeps God on his side he doesn't understand why has God given him any victory at all why has God given him or his father any victory at all why What, what did we just read God had compassion on his people his people were sinful. God had compassion. And he sent a Savior. Their response to him was, Thanks a lot, God. And then they went their own way. That's what's going on here. But God's still being faithful. Look, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha knows what he's come for. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, he drew it. Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. I want you to get the scene in your mind. This is this is powerful. The old man, sick unto death, climbs out of his deathbed, stands up at the window with the king, with the young king, says, Pull the bow, draw the bow. And then he puts his hands around the king and puts his hands on the king's hands. He says, now let it fly. And the Lord, and he said... The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. Now Ahab had tried to fight the Syrians at Aphek, and it turned into an indecisive battle in which Ahab was killed. Now the city of Aphek also is, is going to become once again the scene of a strategic battle. And God has declared and decreed through His prophet victory for Israel to, re, to retake that city and in retaking that city get the upper hand militarily over the kingdom that has bedeviled them for a generation. And what does He say about the arrow? What does He call it? Victory. This is the Lord's arrow of victory. Not your arrow of victory. The Lord's arrow of victory. Notice who's going to get all the credit here. And then he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with him. Take this bundle of arrows. Remember that expression, Syria had turned Israel into dust on the threshing floor? It's a strike of dust. Beat the ground with these arrows. So he does. Three times. And Elisha is furious. This is just Elisha. idiot you idiot what's wrong with you look at what he says the man of God was angry with him oh I love that <laughs> then the man of a spiritually sensitive soul would quake at that thought that the man of God would be angry with you uh, Joash was not really spiritually sensitive. You should have struck it five or six times. You would have struck Syria down and then you'd have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. How was he supposed to know? I ask you that. How was he supposed to know that? Well, he should have known that arrow of victory. This arrow is your victory. How much do you want to win? He knows exactly what Elisha is telling him to do. Strike the ground. He knows exactly that Elisha means strike the ground every time you strike the ground. You've got victory. He strikes three times. Now what we're going to find out is that was enough to get victory for now. That's enough to that's enough to get security a measure of security three times that that does it. That, yeah, three is a perfect number. Bang, bang, bang. There we got it. You should have struck five or six times. Why? Make it decisive. Get rid of this enemy once and for all. Get this enemy out of your life. You sh- just deal with it. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to prove? Now, here's my point. The king knew what Elisha was getting him to do. He knew exactly the sim- symbolism that Elisha was using. Doesn't say specifically why he did not. So, it's up to us to use our understanding of human nature and our understanding of what the Word of God is to figure that out. So, what are some ideas? Why might this team not have taken advantage of of the opportunity that Elisha gave to him to get total victory over his enemy.
0: Why? Maybe He thought three was
1: enough. I mean, you know, you're not that good. I but I don't think he's he do smart. Hmm? Don't think he thought he could do it? I just don't think he was smart enough. <laughs> <laughs> just, he just, have just, just might have not have been very bright. That's true. <laughs> I'm thinking there possibilities are kind of along these lines one possibility is that he really really (coughs) didn't believe any of this stuff but I don't think that that's correct because where is he right now he's there if he really didn't believe it, he wouldn't have come. That could be. It's not that he's there because he's worshiping the Lord. It's not that he's there because he's a devout servant of the Lord. He's there because he's upset. And he knows that Elisha is the only one that's given him any possibility of any victory at all. So, um, I don't think it's because he just simply doesn't believe at all another possibility i think is that he um well he you know he might have thought okay three's enough but that would mean he's really stupid because he knows the opportunity that's been given to him every time you strike the arrows that's victory for you against your worst enemy that this is only for four generations like oh well it's not going to matter anyway after me right that could be it could be think, um, it's not going matter <clears throat> Thank you, so not sure. there I think there's a deeper level of unbelief that's going on here he believes in the promise in and of itself I think he knows what it is I think there's a deeper measure of unbelief. Here's here's what I think it is. I think that there's something in him that sh- that shrinks back. He might have thought, "Well, this is just humility. I need to be humble about this." The flesh always makes thinks it's being humble when actually it's being incredibly prou- proud. the flesh thinks it's being humble when it says, "Oh, no, I don't want everything that God has for me. I just only want a part." The flesh thinks it's being humble that way. See, that's fleshly religion. That's carnal religion. That is humanistic religion. That is humanistic faith. This is the these are the people who come and they have been honored at a great They've been honored at a great banquet, and people have gathered together and are singing their praises, and they stand up and say, I am so humbled by this. No, you're not, and you're not supposed to be.
0: Yeah, that's
1: right. I said it. If you are humbled when people are honoring you, you are embarrassing the people who are trying to humble you, who are trying to honor you. Jesus made that point. Didn't he? Never mind. Well, I, we'll get there when we get to the gospel. Yeah, he did. He did make that point. You want me to just. Oh, okay. Let me explainify. Jesus said when you go and eat in a banquet and, they, and you go to a dinner, don't be like those who choose the best seats. And then end up having the host come and having to embarrass himself, say, I'm sorry, that's not for you. This place is not for you. That's for somebody else. No, you go sit at the lowest seat, and then both you and the host will be honored when he says, No, I want you to come up to the best seat. Humble yourself and let others honor you. Don't let others act humble. That's it. never. That's just. I'm sorry. That's just one of the things. That is, that is some of the false religious culture that we've got currently in our society. You know, the Academy Awards. They come up. Oh, I'm so grateful. I'm so humble. I'm so humbled by you. No, you're not. Shut up. <laughs> I'm with you. Back to the point. I don't think he wants victory from God. I don't think he wants the decisive victory. I think there is something in him that recoils at the idea of having God give him the victory. Well, he'd have to give it to
0: God. Give him
1: credit. That's right. He'd have to give God the
0: glory.
1: But he's the king. And he's not going to change. And he's not going to change that idolatrous worship. And so, he hits the ground a few times because he doesn't want to be too indebted to God. He's already indebted to God more than he wants to be. He doesn't want to be too indebted to God. And really and truly in his heart, there is something... And we see this in politicians. And we see this... All of You know, you, it's kind of like... You've got to have your enemy still alive in order for you to have a job. You've got to have somebody to be the villain up against you. That you're the, you know, you're the good guy and they're the villain. And so we've got, and so there's this, but you know, you, you need your competitor. You need your adversary. University of Texas needs Texas A&M and vice versa. You know, I mean, it's just that thing. You, you've you got to have your competitor. You've got to have your rival. And there's this fear of getting rid of my rival. What if that means that I'm going to be out of the job? Idiot. He's a fool. He's a humanist. Through and through. But he'll take from God what what he can get from God. But he's not. And doing so, he's going to miss what God has for him which in this case would be total victory. And in doing so, he's going to doom his nation for the future. Keep going. So Elisha died and they buried him. So Elisha's gone. And pretty soon forgotten. That's true. You've got the prophets. Elijah comes out from Tishbe and just walks into Ahab's office and says it ain't gonna rain till I say it's gonna and from that moment on the prophets dom- the prophets dominate this middle section between at, from the middle of uh, first kings to the right here to the middle of second kings and then the prophets pretty much are going to go away from here on out in kings so Elisha's gone Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was just thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. And then the writer of Kings goes on with this. I mean, he just throws that in there. Don't you just love that? Don't you just... First of all, that's just a cool story. That's just a cool story that that just and it's but you remember that you know that motorboat skimming along the surface and missing the depth that's in there don't miss the depth here you remember how the ministry of Elisha has so often parallel found parallels and become a type of the ministry of Jesus that was to come Bringing life, bringing salvation, bringing wholeness, bringing victory, bringing health, bringing deliverance. From the tomb. Yeah, Elisha succumbed to death. but another dead body touches the dead bones of Elisha and come to life. Do you see in there, number one, do you see a parallel to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That He who was dead and was buried gives new life to us. But it goes further than that. It goes further than that. I want, I want you to think about the reasoning that Jesus used and then follow... in this. Jesus talking to the Sadducees remember the Sadducees in the temple the rulers of the temple believed there is no such thing as resurrection they did not believe in the resurrection they didn't believe in eternal life our job is to do keep the commandments of God for this life after that we're all just gone And they had this riddle that they proposed to Jesus that had stumped the Pharisees. And so they thought that they would see if they could stump Jesus, and it didn't stump Jesus. And he just he looked back and said, your riddle is ridiculous. You guys are mistaken because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And first of all, he answers the riddle directly. And the riddle is irrelevant. That's not my point right now. He goes on and says... Now, here's what the scripture says. Don't you remember when God said to Moses, and the Sadducees said, we only believe in the books of Moses. He says, okay, let's go to the books of Moses that you say you believe in. Don't you remember where Moses spoke to God and God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Let me ask you folks, does life come from death? In this world, do living things come out of dead things? No. Life comes from life. Here's a dead man who touches the dead bones of Elisha and he comes to life. Where does the life come from? The life comes from heaven. Here is a testimony through the dead bones of Elisha. Number one, there is eternal life. There is a living one whose life supersedes all death on this planet. And whose life cannot be conquered or quenched by every death through sin that, is a, that takes place upon this planet. There is a power greater than that. And there will come a day when all the dead shall rise. And that day will be foreshadowed by the one who, by the power of God, rises from the dead on the third day. Now, just going on. Now, Hazael, verse 22, King of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and He turned toward them because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would not destroy them, nor has He cast them from His presence until now. So, the same kind of parallel action. In Judah, you see these things because of God's faithfulness to this promise He made to David. Here, it goes back even further than that. Because of God's promise that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not keeping the law. They're not keeping Torah. But God is keeping faithfulness with the patriarchs who came even before the law. Chapter 14. In the second year of Jehoash, of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah the son of Joash king of Judah began to reign he was 25 years old when he began to reign he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem his mother's name was Jeohaddon of Jerusalem he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord yet not like David his father he did in all things that Joash his father had done but the high places were not removed the people still sacrificed made offering on the high places and as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand he struck down his servants who had struck down the king his father you remember his father was assassinated so he had those men executed but he didn't exercise a purge on the whole family. Why? Because the law of God prohibits that. The law of God says somebody commits a crime worthy of death, he dies for it. But you don't kill his whole family because one guy commits a capital offense. The law has a statute of the limitations of vengeance. And Amaziah obeyed that statute. Verse 7, he struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, took Selah by storm, and called it Joktil, which is its name to this day. We don't even know where that city is anymore. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Jehu, king of Israel. Son of Jehu, king of Israel. Come, let's look one another in the face. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a thistle, cedar on Lebanon saying give your daughter to my son for a wife why a beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle what's the parable what's the point you're out of your league son you've won a nice little victory there enjoy it but you're out of your league don't come picking on me up here you don't want anything of what we've got but Amaziah would not listen verse 11 so jehoash king of israel went up and amaziah king of judah faced one another in battle at beth shemesh which belongs to judah it's a t- city about 15 miles southwest of Jer- or south- yeah, southwest of jerusalem key city on the coastal road that comes down through the plain it was disastrous battle for the judahites lost a terrible, and it was a very important strategic battle. Short version of all of this is that then uh, Jehoash comes up to Jerusalem, breaks down Jerusalem's defensive walls, captures treasure from the temple, takes it home, and even takes prisoner, King Amaziah, takes him hostage. And takes other hostages back to Samaria. Not a a good day for Judah. Here's the perplexing thing. Which one of these guys is the good king? King of Judah or king of Israel? King of Judah. He's the good king. He's not great. He's no David. But he's as good as Joash. Joash. That's not bad. He serves the Lord. The king of Israel, grandson of Jehu, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Who wins? The king who does evil in the sight of the Lord. Who loses? The king who does right in the sight of the Lord. That bother you? It bothers me. What's going on? We've got. And here's what's going to happen later on in the chapter. You're going to have the rise. Okay, Syria's going to be put down. You know who's going to come back, come up, take the place of Syria? little kingdom over further east in Mesopotamia called Assyria. Let me just go ahead and tell you, these are the Klingons of the ancient world. These people are vicious, they are cruel, and you're going to have the rise of a king named Tiglath-Pileser, who is going to come through. And he's going, to, <laughs> he's going to kind of change everything. We've got the good, the bad, and the ugly. And here's what we've got. The bad is punishing the good. And the ugly is going to come in and deliver the good and punish the bad. And we're thinking, what is God doing? What is all this all about? Why do, we have, why do we have all of this ingratitude? We've got what we're going to see also. I'm not going to get all, we'll, we'll cover it in introducing the next chapters when we get to it. We mentioned Jeroboam. Jeroboam II. Only, if, only about a paragraph is given to him in Kings. Jeroboam II was actually, if this was a secular study of Jeroboam II, we'd have a whole volume on Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II, the great-great-grandson of Jehu. Fourth generation. Jehu, his son, his grandson, his great-grandson. Jeroboam II. He's good. Militarily, probably the most effective king that Israel had. During his reign, there was a period of Strength and prosperity that was unparalleled in the whole history of that kingdom. Economically, it was great. It was better than it had been since Solomon. The last time they had had this much wealth in Israel, Solomon was the king over the whole thing. Israel was powerful and then there was also I mean there was a balance of power. Israel was basically ruling over Judah. Judah was sort of a vassal state to Israel at this point. You had things going. It was just he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It didn't change any of the precedent that Jeroboam the first had set. Jeroboam the second in worldly sense of the word was A good king. God says, I don't like it. And God doesn't give him that much credit for anything. (coughs) If you want to read about him, you can go, go to the library. Of course, those books don't exist anymore. During this period of prosperity, now all of this time, before this time, God have been using Syria especially, but the uh, Syria and the other kings of the world to, to, to afflict, to punish, to bring chastening and discipline to get the attention of His people. Now He gives them a break. Not only does He give them a break, He pours blessing into their kingdom. Material blessing. To whom do they give the credit? The king. Who? Do they continue to turn their back on God? Do they repent? No. What is the point? Remember we're talking about kings, prophets, and Christ. Where is Christ in this? We find the answer from Paul. In Galatians chapter 3. He says, If there had been a law given, which would have given life true verily I mean, I'll quote the King James version because this is the 400th year of the anniversary of the King James Bible is the law then against the promises of God God forbid for if a law had been given which could have given life verily righteousness would have been by the law but the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe Where does the life come from? It doesn't come from the law. It comes from the promise of God. According to the law, there is condemnation. According to the law, there is punishment. According to the law, there is a curse. But the promise by faith comes through Jesus Christ. All of this is to prove it doesn't matter what God does. He can punish, He can chastise. Or He can give blessing and promise. Under the law, guided by the law, we're not going to change. We're not going to obey the law. It's not because the law is bad, it's because we are. Romans chapter 8. Have a look there and then we'll be gone. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness, righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and the peace. Life and peace. For the mind that set on the flesh is hostile to God it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And all that's what we're seeing in this stretch of 1 Kings. Beneath the surface. Beneath all the politics. Beneath all of the military stuff. Beneath all of the interesting stories of the prophets. You've got this current. God is through all of this time. Proving and demonstrating how. Man cannot save himself. Even if he's given a perfect law to obey. Man cannot save himself. We need a savior.
0: We need Jesus I'm done marks the end of an era. The fact that the king comes to him on his deathbed and laments his near passing with the same words elisha had used of elijah is telling by the way, real quickly, I want to clear up an ambiguity in my discussion of that story. The text says that Elisha told the king to strike the ground with his arrows. That doesn't mean to take a bundle of arrows and beat the ground with them, but to shoot arrows out the window without aiming at a target so that they they will strike the ground. Jehoash only shot three when he should have emptied his quiver, and that's the point. Well, the main thing here is that the era of the heroic prophet, who directly defends the nation, the death of Elisha marks the end of an era. The fact that the king comes to him on his deathbed and laments his near passing with the same words Elisha had used of Elijah is telling. By the way, real quickly I want to clear up an ambiguity in my discussion of that story. The text says that Elisha told the king to strike the ground with his arrows. That doesn't mean to take a bundle of arrows and beat the ground with them, but to shoot arrows out the window without aiming at a target so that they they will strike the ground. Jehoash only shot three when he should have emptied his quiver, and that's the point. Well the main thing here is that the era of the heroic prophet who directly defends the nation and ministers God's mercy to the people. That era is over. There will still be prophets, but their role will be to announce judgment and call for repentance. And we will know about them from their writings and not from the book of Kings. Meanwhile, in the 8th century BC, Israel enjoys the greatest season of peace and prosperity since the days of Solomon. How do you suppose that will work out? We'll see you next time. Until then, you've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in.